0: This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program in segments two and three is the founder of the Chapwood Index, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Ed Batowski. I caught up with Ed uh, at his offices in Dallas this past week and chatted with him about the Chapwood Index. Uh, Ed, recognizing that the official measure of inflation um, really fell short because it's been so manipulated over the years, developed something called the Chapwood Index, where he just prices consumer items in 50 of the largest metropolitan areas of the country and just reports the difference in price year to year. It's a very practical way to measure inflation, and I thought, given that we've been talking about that here on the program, he would be an especially appropriate guest. You know, on numerous occasions here on the radio program, I've made the case that, financially speaking anyway, uh, markets are very artificial. We live in a land, I believe, of make-believe markets, and I talk about that in my July special report titled, Making Sense of Nonsense. I'd love to send you a copy. All you have to do to request it is go to the website, requestyourreportnow.com. The website, again, is requestyourreportnow.com. If you go to that website, just let me know where you would like me to send you your copy of the July special report, again titled Making Sense of Nonsense, and I'd be very glad to get it out in the mail to you. So let's talk about these artificial markets. You know, the base cause, I believe, or one of the, the largest causes, the primary cause, I should say, of artificially inflated markets is the devaluation of the U.S. dollar. Now, dollar devaluation, if we state that another equally accurate way, is price inflation and asset inflation. As the dollar is devalued, anything measured in U.S. dollars increases in price Because the unit, the U.S. dollar, the metric that you're using to measure the price of these items is actually being devalued. So on a nominal basis, you see asset prices go up. Stocks and housing are a couple great examples. But we also see prices rise in consumer items. Now, David Stockman, who's actually a former congressman uh, from the state of Michigan, and former director of the Office of Management and Budget under President Reagan, commented on this in uh, a piece he wrote last week, and I thought the piece was written from a very unique perspective. I want to share just a little bit of this with you, and if you'd like to read the entire article, uh, you can go download the Your RLA app on your smartphone. Just visit the App Store Uh, Go ahead and search under Your R-L-A, Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, and uh, you can look at the recent Portfolio Watch newsletter, and there is a link to the entire article there, and I'd encourage you to do that. Here's just a bit of what Mr. Stockman wrote, and I quote, Socialist central planning has been elevated to a new art form based on control of the economy from the commanding heights of finance. Central banks we once in the money business in the sense of securing its availability, liquidity, and stable value. But the contemporary Fed never says a peep about the place where money arises and dwells, the financial markets, while gumming endlessly about the Main Street economy and the condition of and its targets for the components and constituents of GDP. Now, Stockman says in the last 43 years, About the time that the U.S. dollar has been a fiat currency, total financial assets held by the household sector have increased by a staggering $100 trillion. Stockman in his article says that's a proxy for the massive levels of bank deposits, money market funds, bonds, publicly traded shares, and private equities that flow through the warp and woof of the nation's $21 trillion gross domestic product. Now, Stockman makes a really terrific point, which really demonstrates how artificial these markets have become. In the article, he shows a chart of the real Fed funds rate. Now, he calculates what he calls the real Fed funds rate by subtracting the year-over-year consumer price index increase, that's the official rate of inflation, from the Fed's target rate. So the Fed target rate minus the officially measured rate of inflation gives you the real Fed funds rate. Stockman points out that during the last 169 months, that's about 13 years, the rate has been deeply negative 96% of the time and has been a tad positive for a grand total of seven months. He adds that the Fed funds rate, the real Fed funds rate, now stands at a negative 2.37%. And he said, never in a million years would participants in voluntary exchange on the free market lend money at negative real interest rates. It defies economic logic and sanity itself. Think about that. Would you lend money to someone knowing that you're going to get back less in real terms down the road. And Stockman makes the point that that is exactly what is going on. Now, keep in mind that Stockman calculates the real Fed funds rate by using the heavily manipulated consumer price index, which is the official measure of inflation. If we were to take the Fed funds rate and subtract the real inflation rate rather than the officially reported inflation rate, and I'll talk more about the real inflation rate with my guest, Ed Batowski in the next segment, the already negative real Fed funds rate goes even more negative. And Stockman points out that smart, savvy investors operating in a free market would never accept real returns that are negative. So this very simple example demonstrates just how artificial markets have become. Now, let's take that same line of thinking and let's apply it to stocks. And I do this in great detail in the July report, Making Sense of Nonsense. Again, if you're just joining me, I'd love to send you a copy of that report. Visit requestyourreportnow.com and I'll be glad to send you a copy. Now, if we look at stocks, um, and and let's just take the S&P 500 which is a broad stock index. And lo- let's look at that since calendar year 2000. Now, over that time frame, roughly speaking, the S&P 500 has moved from 1400 to about 4200. So it's up 300%, right? Well, not quite so fast. Let's determine the real rate of return and adjust those returns for US dollar devaluation. As I said at the outset of this segment, as price inflation makes the price of essentials like food, fuel, lumber, automobiles increase, that same price inflation causes stock values to move nominally higher. But that doesn't mean they're higher on a real basis. My opinion is the best way to determine the, revalu- the, the real value of stocks rather, is to price them in a consistent metric. Since gold has been used as money for most of, his, most of history, let's see what happens when we price stocks in gold. Well, let's take the value of the S&P 500 in calendar year 2000 and divide it by the price of gold per ounce. Well, the S&P 500 in calendar year 2000 stood at 1,400, and if we divide that by the approximate price of gold per ounce of $280 we arrive at a real value of the S&P 500 priced in gold of about 5. So let's take 1,400, divide by 280, and we get about 5. So put another way, in calendar year 2000, it took 5 ounces of gold to buy the S&P 500. Now let's fast forward to today. The S&P 500 stands at about 4,200, and the price of gold per ounce is about 1800. So doing the same calculation today, taking 4200 and dividing by 1800, 4200 being the level of the S&P 500 and 1800 being the price of gold per ounce in US dollars, we arrive at a number of 2.3. So today it takes 2.3 ounces of gold to buy the Dow, to buy the S&P 500 rather and in 2000 it took five ounces. So are stocks on a real basis really 300% higher than 20 years ago? No, on a real basis, stocks are lower than they were 20 years ago. And despite that fact, stocks in my view are incredibly overvalued. Quick example would be if we take the total value of stocks, that's also known as market capitalization, and we divide that number by economic output or gross domestic product, we see that stocks now are more overvalued than at any time in history. At the tech stock bubble peak, prior to a decline in the stock market of more than 50% over nearly three years, we saw that stocks or market capitalization was 159% of GDP. Today, that number is 209%. So stock valuations, despite the fact that they're lower on a real basis, are now, based on the size of the U.S. economy, nearly one-third overvalued when compared to stock values at the tech stock peak. So on a real basis, in my view, stocks will go lower. And I talk about this in the July report. Also give you some strategies to consider for your own financial situation. Again, as we approach the end of the segment, let me tell you to go to the website requestyourreportnow.com and I'll be glad to send you a copy of my July report, Making Sense of Nonsense. Again, uh, the website requestyourreportnow.com. I'll return after these words and I will be chatting with Mr. Ed Batowski, who is the founder of the Chapwood Index, which is an alternate measure of the real inflation rate. You won't want to miss my conversation with him. I'll return after these words. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host Dennis Tubergen. I'm chatting today with returning guest, Mr. Ed Batowski. Uh, Some of you who are longtime listeners may remember Ed as the founder of the Chapwood Index, and uh, he's also the author of the book Wealth Mismanagement, which is available on Amazon, and Ed, welcome back to the program.
1: Well, thanks for having me again, Dennis.
0: So Ed, let's just start, uh, if we could, for our listeners that maybe are not familiar with the Chapwood Index, can you explain what it is?
1: sure um the index was created at at a, as the result of a conversation i had with a gentleman named uh, john williams john williams has a phenomenal website called shadow stats and he does a great work in terms of calculating what the true inflation rate is when you take away the manipulation that the government has put in since 1983 uh, they changed the way they calculated the cpi They used to have 1,700 items that they calculated every single month. And when the inflation rate got to 13%, the government changed the way they calculated it. So it quickly went from 13% down to 3% the next year. And in 1994, under the Boskin Commission, who was a professor at Stanford, he was entrusted by the government to come up with a new way to calculate the CPI, and every time they've done this, and they continue to do it, they make that number seem lower. So um, I asked John Williams. I said that you know every city has its own unique cost of living increase. Um, why don't you do something with that? And he said, well, he didn't have the time to do it. So I decided that I would do it. So I created. I took the fifty major cities in the United States and calculated the items that people use most often. And had people literally going in the stores every single quarter and calculating uh, the exact increase in the prices. Then it got too much work, so I did it twice a year. Um, now, recently, sadly, because of COVID, I've had to hold back on updating the numbers. But the numbers were very much in line with what John Williams had found. But I do mine city by city.
0: Well, it's interesting because uh, John Williams has been a frequent guest here on the program as well, and he was on in the second week of June, and you know he is forecasting that we'll likely have a hyperinflationary outcome here. So, let me just ask uh, Ed going into to COVID. So this would be early 2020, maybe 2019. Give our listeners a bit of an idea as to you know what the real inflation rate was based on your research with the Chapwood Index.
1: And and you have to remember, when we talk about inflation, we're talking about cost of living increase. We're not talking about the cost of living because cost of living people can get comfortable with, but it's the increase that that destroys people's lives. And when I was seeing in the West Coast and a lot of the cities in California, including Seattle and Portland, I was seeing double-digit inflation uh, numbers up to about 12 percent per year. And Chicago was 11 percent, New York was 11 percent, uh, Philadelphia was 12 percent, and these major cities are, you know, seeing cost of living increases mainly because of the tax policies that are in, you know, ingrained in those cities. So um, that's why you have a difference between that and Taos, New Mexico, and you know even Dallas, uh, where I reside, was up 9.2 percent year over year. Um, so it, it has a lot to do with what the tax implications are, not just for the city itself, but also for products that come into the city. Um, cost to do business on the road, for instance, uh, the, you know, even taxes, uh, tolls, everything trickles down to the end investor or the end user and that's that's sad, but that's what the real numbers are. So when the government was sitting there saying that inflation was one and a half percent, well, the true cost of living increase if you were in uh Long Beach was twelve percent, so you were losing ten and a half percent purchasing power year after year
0: well ed when you when you stop and think about that let's just use the the, the 12% number, and I think John Williams estimates now that uh, if we were to calculate the inflation rate the way they did pre-1980, I think it was in the 70s that then Fed Chair Arthur Burns, as a result of food and fuel prices going up, said we need to take those out of the uh, out of the mix because uh, it's OPEC's fault and it's the drought. It's not our policies. And you know, there's been a lot of changes made through the years. But when you take a look at a, a 12% inflation rate, and then take a look at how artificially low interest rates have been been, been held, uh, that creates a real problem for people that want to retire and maybe invest more conservatively, like uh, a lot of people who are retired not only want to do, but, but perhaps should do. So yeah. what, what would you say to those people?
1: Well, education is always the key, because if I was to turn to somebody without having any knowledge and tell them that they should be buying senior rate floating notes, they would look at me with, with a, you know, a sideways look because they wouldn't understand what I was talking about. But to me, that is an alternative to regular bonds. Um, you know, Right now, there's only four companies that trade on the stock market that are triple A rated. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and, and that's uh, Microsoft and, um, my goodness, uh, Singapore Telephone. And there was one other. Um, I think
0: it's uh, I Johnson Johnson and ones. Johnson might be in there. Uh,
1: it, it could be Johnson and Johnson, and,
0: and maybe Walmart, but, but, but yeah,
1: no, Walmart was not. Um, oh, really? But but when you get to the education part, and people say, "Well, I want triple A rated bonds," they're getting point two percent on that, and you know, and and double A rated bonds, they're getting one percent, and single A rated bonds, they're getting one and a half percent, and so there's education to learn about alternative ways because the need for income is always going to be there. But how people derive that income has to change based on where the artificially low interest rates are right now.
0: So Ad given, uh, you know, that we're seeing inflation emerge uh, a bit more in earnest and, and given that pre-COVID, you were seeing, you know, 10 to 12% um, actual increases in the cost of living, uh, where would you estimate that uh, the, the, the real inflation rate or cost of living increase has gone in the last year?
1: It, it, it's scary to think um, just how high the cost of living increases. And, and if you notice, I, I avoid saying the CPI because of its manipulation, um, but I would say that across the board, we're probably looking at 15% uh, cost of living increase. When you look at at gas and taxes and food, I mean, you know, everybody can see, you know, just how much food has gone up. Uh, I went the other day to Costco to buy some steaks and I got six steaks and they were $120. And, and these were ribeyes and, My wife said, well, this is normal. And I thought, my goodness, we got to stop eating this. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's just ridiculous how high everything is. And if wages don't increase to uh, compensate for it, we're going to have ourselves a real problem uh, in this country
0: so ed when you when you you mentioned that that wages do need to increase to uh allow people just to meet their 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 daily living expenses, it seems that that's not what's happening. It seems that we have stagflation it seems that we have you know economic contraction we have uh really to, to some extent uh more stagnant wages uh, especially at the lower end of the pay scale and yet um we have this inflation now now w- would you agree with that and then and then secondly in your view how do you think it ends
1: well you know i'm happy you said the word stagflation because you know that's revisiting uh from many many years ago but that's actually what we do have um you know, with the exception of high unemployment, which some people will argue, you know we we still have a lot of jobs out there that need to be filled. Um, but if you look at inflation is rising and cost of living uh, uh, or an income is is down, um, you know what you have to have is an increase in wages. And, you know, now people are arguing about minimum wage, which I don't believe really plays a huge role in the overall economy. Uh, there's a lot of cities and a lot of states that are increasing minimum wage, and that's not making a big uh, change. I mean, you're, you're looking at if you were working $10 an hour, uh, making $10 an hour at a 40-hour week, you were making $400. If you increase that to $15, you are making $600. Well, I mean, that's not going to change your life. Um, and it's not going to increase the amount of money into the system uh, that's being used. So uh, how this thing ends is going to be, uh, you know, really just an ugly scenario where we're going to see hyperinflation. We're going to see people who just can't make ends meet. You're going to see, you know, real estate prices continue to soar, uh, and and products continue to go up in price. But we're not going to have wages there to compensate for it unless you're. Uh,
0: you know, a one percenter. Well, c- certainly, Ed. When you when you take a look at you know the one percent, the one percent have done quite well over the last year. And yet, I I recently read an article that uh, reported that one in four Americans now, are the the lower quarter of the of the uh, earnings uh, segment of society, if to use that term, um, is now having difficulty making ends meet. And then we've got. Rent moratoriums, which were extended through the end of July, and uh, you know we're we're talking here approaching mid July now, um, you know th- that's going to be, I believe, a, a big headwind moving ahead.
1: Well, it it, it should be. Um, you know, I I don't know how many people have taken advantage of the rent moratorium, but if if I was in an apartment and I was offered the opportunity to have a rent moratorium, I would take it, um, and I think a lot of people probably have. So, you know, again, it's it's just I don't know how many different ways we can say how ugly it could be and it's going to be. But um, but we're absolutely in a in a unprecedented situation uh, that we're going to see rising costs and less money in people's pockets, um, which is, you know, ultimately what that should cause is prices to come down. um, But you're not going to see that because commodity prices have risen so much.
0: Well, my guest today is Mr. Ed Batowski. He is the founder of the Chapwood Index. Uh, The website is chapwoodindex.org. He is also the author of Wealth Mismanagement. I'll continue my conversation with Ed when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. My guest today is Mr. Ed Batowski. Ed is the founder of the Chapwood Index. Uh, He is also the author of Wealth Mismanagement. And, Ed, you know, we, we talked about the fact that cost of living will likely continue to go up. To what extent do you believe that is attributable to the Fed easy money policies? We've got uh, money creation taking place at the rate of about $120 billion a month. Interest rates are still near zero. Uh, is that what's driving all this?
1: Well, I, I you can't ignore how high M2 is, which is uh, – a, a way of looking at money supply and the amount of money that's out there you know the perfect definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few products and the with the supply chain messed up from covid you have to imagine that it's very difficult to get your hands on a lot of products so therefore the prices have gone up uh, fed policy has definitely played a role in this it didn't happen. In a vacuum, um, it, you know it, it happened because of uh, lots of different reasons. But one of them is the amount of money the Fed is printing, and you know that that money has gotten into the economy as as evidenced by M two, and so you have a tremendous amount of inflationary pressures that have been, you know, basically designed by the Fed, and the Fed isn't recognizing it. They they believe that it's transitory, and uh, the way you combat inflation is to raise interest rates, and they're not willing to do that. Um, although I've heard, you know, from some people, just like anybody else has heard, that they might raise the Fed fund rate and the discount policy by a quarter of a point before the end of the year, but that's not going to squelch um, inflation at all.
0: And, and Ed, you know, when when you look at what happened, for example, uh, back when Paul Volcker raised interest rates to, I think the Fed funds rate went to almost twenty percent, as I recall. Um, you know, that that certainly subdued inflation, but it also created, uh, at least temporarily, uh, a, a very difficult economic environment. So I think any way you slice this, would you agree that we're we're in for some uh, tough few years here?
1: Yeah, uh, no question about it. And, and it shocks me how many people continue to pile money into the stock market, um, you know, not, not recognizing the lofty valuation of the stock market. The, the stock market is priced high because the 10-year treasury is so low. But if the 10-year treasury rises, that's going to put a, a stretch on, on a strain, I should say, on valuations on the stock market. And so you know, seeing 20% on the Fed funds rate, would be shocking. I mean, given that we're at zero right now, uh, but you know, seeing five percent on the Fed funds rate is not something out of the question over the next couple of years.
0: Well, I think the other uh, elephant in the room is that you know, in 1980, when Paul Volcker raised. Uh, interest rates, uh, the Fed funds rate, to nearly 20%. Uh, the U.S. government had about a trillion dollars in debt. We're nearly 30 times that today. So, you know, if interest rates do come up and the and the and the federal government is forced to finance really a, a level of debt that's you know insurmountable, like it can't be paid. If they're forced to try to finance that at five or six percent, doesn't that create an even bigger problem?
1: That's exactly why you're probably going to continue to see rates low. Um, You know, you have to really question if the government is selling those bonds. Um, You know, they print money and they create debt. And you have to wonder, are they really selling it to other countries or are they just selling it to themselves and then not paying um, the interest on them? But if, in fact, they are selling them to other countries, what country in their right mind is going to continue to buy our bonds when they're paying 0.2 percent? Um, I mean, whoever it is, whatever country that is, needs a new financial advisor um, because it's just a horrible way of managing your money. And and how long can that last? So at some point, rates are going to have to rise. Uh, and, you know, you look at the credit quality. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, our country's debt is rated. We're rated about 14th in terms of our ability to pay on our debt. And that number has gotten Lower, meaning higher number over the last couple of years. It used to be we were ranked ninth. Um, so at some point, when our quality of our ability to pay on our debt goes down, the reverse happens, meaning that interest rates rise. And so at, at some point, you know, if we get to 5% and we have 20, well, we'll call it $30 trillion, that means we have, you know, 1.5%. Or one and a half trillion dollars goes to just pay interest, and we bring in about four trillion in tax revenue a year. So, I mean, we're 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 really, you know, at a at a really dicey part. of – I would say that that's about thirty percent of what we bring in would go to pay interest on our debt alone. That's scary.
0: Yeah, and, and Ed, I think, you know, when you talk about John Williams, and uh, you, you referenced your, uh, your your work with him and conversations with him in the first segment, I think that's why he's predicting a hyperinflationary outcome, as is to Alistair McLeod, and they're they're saying this could happen sooner rather than later for the reasons that you just articulated. Uh, would you agree?
1: Yeah, well, those, those gentlemen are a lot smarter than I am. Um, I, I learned from them, uh, but I would have to say that there's really no reason for that not to happen uh, unless there's some sort of, you know, some people say, well, why don't we just tell everybody to forgive our debt and just let it just erase it. And I can't imagine that that's ever going to happen. So I don't see any other alternative, but to see hyperinflation.
0: So Ed, let's talk a little bit about your book and talk a little bit about uh, what, what advice you might give our listeners. Um, Explain to the listeners uh, the motivation behind your book, Wealth Mismanagement.
1: Well, I was in the industry. I grew up at Morgan Stanley. And for many, many years, I would sit there and and sell the mutual funds and sell the different products that Morgan Stanley had presented and did very well. Um, I was one of their top producers uh, in the country. Uh, Only when I left Morgan Stanley and I got with a gentleman at Wharton, I really learn about wealth management? And I sat in on a couple of institutional meetings, meaning that uh, meetings where he would have with uh, groups that were very large endowments and foundations. And there was a whole different language that was spoken and it had to do with sharp ratios and regression analysis and, and, and all these other terms that I never got when I was at Morgan Stanley. So I quickly became a student Of investing and realized that the majority of the portfolios that retail investors are given by their brokers are inefficient, meaning they're taking too much risk for the expected rate of return. And the rate of return, uh, you know, oftentimes people don't know what rate of return they need to make because they don't factor in the cost of living increase. Um, So I created uh, eight metrics that I highlight in the book. About how to evaluate a portfolio, and realizing that what I ended up doing was really going after people in my industry, but not because uh, you know I didn't like them. It was because the whole industry is one where people aren't not are not trained properly on how to evaluate a portfolio, and it's not their fault. It's the firm's fault for not understanding portfolio management. So wealth mismanagement is, uh, is starts off with how I got to where I was or where I am now. And it highlights exactly how you should evaluate a portfolio. And I created the CHIP score, which stands for Chapwood Investment Portfolio Score. And it's a way for anybody can go there to uh, my website, chapwoodinvestments.com, and pull down the CHIP score and fill out the information and find out what their score is Uh, because it always bothered me, Dennis, that there wasn't a way to score portfolios, that people chose financial advisors based on uh, a friend's recommendation and or the name of a firm. But that's not how you should choose a portfolio or a financial advisor. You should get in writing what their recommendations are and then able then be able to study and analyze the probability of a loss in the next 12 months based on what they recommended to you, the amount of money at risk in the next 12 months. And I created a term called variance drag phantom tax, which has to do with how much, what your standard deviation is relative to your historical rate of return. And your standard deviation should be 80% or less than your historical rate of return. And those are some of the, the nuggets out of my book that Uh, I would love for anybody uh, to to go in and get and give me their input on it.
0: Well, Ed, uh, given what you just stated and, uh, you know, in the first segment, you alluded to the fact that stock valuations are really at at nosebleed levels, to use that term. I think uh, using the uh, uh, Buffett indicator, market capitalization to gross domestic product, we've got valuations now that are about a third higher than they were at the peak of the tech stock bubble. Uh, What's your view for traditional asset classes moving ahead, which are often stocks and bonds or stock funds and bond funds?
1: Yeah, well, I I see the stock market currently 31 percent overvalued based on historical uh, value, based on where interest rates are and where earnings expectations are. So you have um, you have the stock market that should be selling at a PE of 17, selling at 26 right now. And that is just not sustainable. So what has to happen is earnings either have to increase, which they're not going to dramatically, or prices have to come down. But at some point there'll be a reversion back to the mean. Bond prices are are one of the worst investments you can make right now is in a long dated fixed income bond. Uh, anybody who has those should be selling them and taking their profits right now, and reinvesting them in, uh, you know, something like a senior rate floating note or a business development company, uh, or preferred. Uh, that's how you can get really nice income. Uh, even muni bonds are not something I would recommend because they're interest rate sensitive, and if you buy a long dated one, you're going to get, uh, you know, really hurt badly. You just have to look at 1994 to reflect on rising interest rates and what that did to fixed income. It really destroyed it.
0: Well, the clock says we're going to have to stop there. My guest today is Mr. Ed Batowski. He is the founder of the Chapwood Index. The website is chapwoodindex.org, and his book that we've been chatting about is Wealth Mismanagement, available on Amazon. And, Ed, uh, pleasure to catch up with you again. Keep up the good work. We look forward to an updated Chapwood Index, and we'd love to have you back down the road. Great. Thank you very much, Dass. We will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen, and you are listening to RLA Radio. And thanks again to my special guest this week, Mr. Ed Batowski, for joining us on the program. In the first segment today, I talked about the fact that while stock prices and housing prices are nominally higher, priced in U.S. dollars, that is, on a real basis, I would argue that Prices haven't changed that much. And the reason that I say that or conclude that is that the dollar has been devalued. And as the dollar is devalued, any asset, any item priced in U.S. dollars sees its price go higher. Now, in the case of stocks, I gave you the example of the Standard & Poor 500, which is a broad stock index, and compared the value today to the value about 20 years ago in calendar year 2000 the S&P 500 stood at about 1400 today the S&P 500 is about triple that it's about 4200 so on a nominal basis in the last 20 years stocks have increased about 300% But then we adjusted it for what I would argue is a better metric. We priced the S&P 500 in gold. Now, to do that, we take the S&P 500, which is priced in U.S. dollars, and we divide it by the price of gold per ounce in U.S. dollars, and we get a real value. Well, in calendar year 2000, gold sold for about $280 an ounce, and the S&P 500 was at about $1,400. So if we take 1400 and divide by 280, we get a value of the S&P 500 priced in gold of 5. In other words, in calendar year 2000, it took 5 ounces of gold to to buy the S&P 500. Now fast-forwarding to today, the S&P 500 is at 4200 and gold is about 1800. So now we get a value of 2.3. So it takes less than half the amount of gold to buy the S&P 500 as it did in calendar year 2000. See the difference that the metric or the measuring stick makes. Now, we can also apply this to housing. In almost every market nationally, housing prices have now exceeded their highs prior to the last real estate market collapse back in 2006-2007. If one takes a look at the Case-Shiller National Home Price Index, which is the most commonly used index to determine housing prices, you quickly conclude that housing prices are about 30% higher than they were at the peak in 2006-2007. Now, in my view, there is a lot of evidence, not only looking at the chart, which I'll talk about here in a second, but also taking a look at the number of mortgage applications that housing may now be experiencing what I would call a blow-off top. Now, a blow-off top, if you're not familiar with the term, it is a technical term that describes a huge upward price move as prices peak and then reverse. If you look at the price trajectory of real estate, of housing, on a chart from 2004 to 2006 and compare it, With the trajectory today, you find that the trajectory of housing prices is even more upward or more parabolic today than it was prior to the real estate market collapsing. There was an article published by The Street last week. The link will be in my July special report. If you've not yet requested your copy of the July special report, Making Sense of Nonsense, Go to the website, requestyourreportnow.com. Let me know where to mail you your copy, and I'll be very glad to do that. But this article pointed out that year-over-year, housing prices increased more than 14% on average. Phoenix, San Diego, and Seattle reported the highest year-over-year gains among the 20 cities in the index. Phoenix saw a 22.3% price increase, I should say, year-over-year. San Diego was 216 and Seattle was over 20% as well. Craig Lazara, who is the managing direct, director and global head of index investment strategy at S&P, said this. The 14.6% gain in the national index is the highest reading in more than 30 years of case Schiller data. So we had a bigger month in April than we have seen in 30 years. But as I stated, there is now evidence that the housing market may be be beginning to slow and prices may be getting ready to reverse. Fox Business reported last week that mortgage applications are now at the lowest level seen in more than one year. The Mortgage Bankers Association quoted in the article... Attributed the declines to rising inflation, you think, and buyers being priced out of the market. There's an old market adage that the best cure for low prices are low prices, and the best cure for high prices are high prices. And certainly, we're seeing easy credit, which is really bubble fuel. Bubbles can't exist without easy credit. Um, And we're seeing inflation fuel this Housing, what I believe, is a bubble. And if you just take a look at mortgage interest rates, for example, if you look at where mortgage interest rates were prior to the last real estate market collapse, the low in mortgage rates was 5.5%. We have recently seen mortgage rates drop below 3% on a 30-year basis. Well, let's just compare the payments On a 30-year mortgage with a balance of $300,000 with an interest rate of 5.5% versus 2.75%. If you have a 5.5% interest rate on your 30-year mortgage, your payments are $1,703 each month. At 2.75%, the payments are $1,225 a month. So that's a difference of about $479 per month. Now, as many of you are aware lenders often use the 28% rule to determine how much house a potential buyer can afford. And the 28% rule is really simple. You shouldn't spend more than 28% of your gross income on a mortgage payment. Well, if we work those mortgage payment numbers in reverse, at a 2.75% interest rate, a borrower could qualify for a $300,000 mortgage with annual gross income of about $52,000. However, if interest rates are 5.5%, you now need $73,000 in income to buy the same house. That is a meaningful difference in income. When mortgage rates are at 5.5% rather than 2.75%, you need 40% more gross income to qualify for the same mortgage. Now, this simple comparison demonstrates how many more borrowers could qualify for a mortgage when interest rates are as low as they are presently. Interestingly, a huge housing bubble built then burst with mortgage interest rates in 2004 and 2005 at nearly twice the level of recent mortgage interest rates. So that, in my view, makes a very solid argument that the bubble is likely bigger this time. Now, I investigate all this in detail in my July special report titled Making Sense of Nonsense. Visit the website, requestyourreportnow.com, and I'll be very glad to send you a complimentary copy. The website, again, is requestyourreportnow.com. And be sure to tune in next week. uh, I will be having an interview with billionaire investor Jim Rogers. I intend to uh, interview him via Zoom from his offices in Singapore. That will be on next week's program. That's all the time I have for this week. I'll be back again next week. Hope you got something you can use.